When working with marriage and family issues, honestly, there's no subject that scares me more deeply than the subject we're talking about this morning, pornography. It's become a massive problem for men. It is a growing problem for women. And so we want you to know this morning we're speaking to both men and women about this subject. I know that some of you are already thinking, I don't really see the problem because you remember finding the stash of Playboys in your youth like I did, and it didn't become a problem for you. But the porn that we're talking about today is not yesterday's Playboys. In the past, access was actually somewhat limited. You had to work at it if you were a minor to have access to it. But today, pornography is available online for free, 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year. In secrecy, you can access it anonymously. And it's that combination which enables a massive number of exposures and repetitions as compared to the past. The content is different as well. The content is often much more hardcore, and I mean by that containing anything you might imagine. Often the content is more violent and contains verbal aggression, particularly towards women. And so let me just touch on two things this morning. What can, what can porn do to you personally and what can porn do to our relationships? I attended a conference this past spring on pornography and scientist after scientist and doctor after doctor stood up and all of them had the word neuro somewhere in their title and they all said the same thing. Christian and non-Christian alike, by the way. They said that the science on porn shows that when you're accessing porn continuously, it's rewiring your brain, much like what they see with drug addiction. And in part, the reason is because of how your brain processes this. When you view porn and act on it, it produces a, um, a July 4th fireworks explosion of neurochemicals in your brain, things like dopamine, oxytocin, and many others. And the brain starts to take notice of an event and a chemical release, and it starts to build a, a wiring superhighway. And it's the repetition which causes the connection, and the connection causes a craving. Many of you that have kicked smoking know exactly what I mean. The hardest time, oftentimes, an ex-smoker will say is uh, staying clean is right after a meal or right after uh, having an alcoholic beverage. Why? Because the brain remembered the connection between the event and the chemical release. So let me recap. How is porn impacting us personally? Well, it is addictive. The science is showing that it can rewire the brain, and also it can alter your judgment. Study after study is now beginning to show that continuous porn use increases your tolerance for violence and aggression towards women, which leads me to, so how might all of this impact our relationships? There's a correlation between porn use and an increase in infidelity, it encourages selfishness. Women are seen differently. They're seen as an object, as a tool for personal gratification. And the ability to have a real intimate relation with a real person is decreased. Women often report an increase in aggression and roughness from their husbands. Men, some of you may not know my wife, but she's actually the daughter of the king. And one day, I will stand before the king, and I will give an account of how I have treated the king's daughter. And so will you. Morally, 
And relationally, pornography is all seen the same. A, a counselor I was talking about, uh, it's seen as sexual betrayal. A counselor I was talking to this week said it really well. She said, look, it doesn't matter whether it is catching your spouse with a prostitute in bed or with somebody else's spouse or with pornography. It's all seen and, and felt by the other spouse as sexual betrayal. It decreases sexual interest and satisfaction with your spouse. And here's the deal. God made sex. Sex is good. And sex is intended to cause pleasure between a husband and a wife. But the problem with pornography is it changes the focus. It changes the focus from a relationship that produces the pleasure to pleasure without a relationship. It's correlated to impotence and ED, and many women have shared with me that they struggle with self-image. How do you compete with a fantasy woman who is uh, available anytime to do anything and ask for nothing in return? So let me end with this. So what can you do? Well, I know that when it comes to this subject that there are two primary barriers that may cause you not to act on what we're talking about today, shame and denial. If you don't think porn is a problem, I would like to encourage you to just educate yourself. We have a few copies of several books out in the lobby for men, for women, if you've been impacted by sexual betrayal. We have hundreds of copies of an ebook here. We have some up on stage called Your Brain on Porn. We have this brochure that you should have received. We have classes that are going to start August 31st on this issue for men. For women, if you've been impacted sexually in terms of sexual betrayal, a parenting class, don't just do there. Don't just stand there. Do something. Lastly, let me challenge everyone to take a look at this. And there's an assessment on page 38. And just think about it. It's not a pornography assessment. It's a sexual purity assessment. How am I doing in that area? Lastly, if you're involved with porn... You may not think it's a problem, but can I challenge you to do something? Stop for 30 days and see what happens. How does pornography impact us personally? How does pornography impact us relationally? Watch the video. Proverbs 4, verse 23 Keep your heart with all vigilance and vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, from it flows the springs of life. The goal of this message is not to shame you, it's not to gloss over, it's Not to just walk away and forget about it, but it's understanding, understanding of what God wants for you, the understanding of freedom, of encouragement, that God can heal, that he can restore, and that he can bring life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of light. Guard your heart with vigilance. 
in the Hebrew, you will often see parts of the body used as direction. For example, uh, we use some of this terminology now. If someone is the head of the class, they're first in the class. They're the leader within the class. In the Hebrew, particularly in the Old Testament, if it says someone is to the hand, it means someone is beside you. They're next to you. If someone is to the face, someone is before you. And there's a word in Hebrew called akarit. And akarit means behind, but it doesn't simply mean someone is behind you. It means that you see the entire picture. You see the final outcome. You see the consequences. You see the whole story. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Matt Bird, our worship leader, he's a sharp young guy. He uh, dresses sharp. He's in good shape. And you may be watching here this morning. You go, man, I kind of wish I looked like that guy. I kind of That's the look that I want. I want that look. That's pretty cool. I want that look. But then when he walked away and he started to walk out here, you notice he had a huge gaping hole in the back of his pants as he walked out. You wouldn't still be going, man, I wish I looked like him. You wouldn't be going, man, that's the look I'm looking for. That's the way I want to be viewed. That's not what you would think. You would think, oh, that kind of changes my impression a little bit. And I don't think I, that's, that's not exactly what I was looking for. Why? Because now you've seen the whole picture. That's akarit. You've seen the entire picture. God sees the entire picture, not just the front, not just the veneer, but the whole story, the whole body, the whole work. You see, God's laws, as we've talked about, His will is not arbitrary. He doesn't just say, you know what, I want you to keep your heart pure. I don't want you to have sex outside of marriage or before marriage. He's not just being arbitrary. He's doing that because He designed you and He created you. And He wants you to know the freedom of life that He created you to experience in its fullness. And He sees the akarit. We only see the front picture, but he sees the entire lifespan. He sees the final outcome, the final impact, and the final consequence. So as God sees the akarit, we trust him. His word reveals the akarit. And we trust that as believers in Christ. There are so many myths in our culture today that are used, that are spoken, that have become the value system of the United States of America and most of the world. Myths like, I will be happy if I can just get what I desire. If I can just get what I want, I'll be happy. If I can just get it. As a matter of fact, absolutely, whatever I want, that ought to be the greatest value in life. I ought to be able to have what I want. But God sees the akarid. And he has standards and principles for us to live by. And not just follow the front, but realize there is a back side that completes the picture. I don't need to feel convicted about anything. We're all basically good, but the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. 
I should never have to wait for anything. I want it. I want it now. Why do I have to wait till I get married? Why do I have to wait till I get home? Why do I have to wait till she's in the mood? Tolerance is the highest virtue. Can I just say a word about tolerance? First of all, tolerance was never intended to be about principles and values. It's about people. We are tolerant of others. We are respectful. There's a great word uh, that, in my opinion, is almost synonymous with tolerance. We are respectful of others, but it doesn't mean that we tolerate. In other words, we fully accept the value system. And the last one, pornography is not harmful. It's no big deal. What's the problem with it? You know, there's a quote that I think, if I could give you one quote that sums up the problem with sexual immorality, the problem with pornography, it would be this. It's this, that sin will take you farther than you ever wanted to go, and it will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, Pornography will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will always cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. So what does it destroy? Well, it destroys your freedom. Your freedom to be real, to be honest, to be open, to be authentic. It destroys your values because you have to start to change your values. What once convicted you, once you regarded sin, you start to soften and you start to change because you can't reconcile the two. Your relationships, particularly with your spouse and maybe even with your children, begins to change because of this addiction, because of this sin that is killing, stealing, and destroying, and ultimately your faith because of the consternation of the two. But there's good news. God is like the father and the prodigal son, waiting with open arms, ready to put a robe on your back and a ring on your foot and sandals on your feet. He longs for us to come and to confess our need for him. Because that's the God that we serve. But the problem is, Often we found our, we find ourselves in addiction. How do I know if I'm in the process of an addiction? How do I know? How does that even start? How does a person even get there? Well, in pornography, like really substances, first of all, it's denial. I don't do that. No, it's not a problem. I, I, no, I, I don't. Maybe once, but I no, that's not a problem for me minimization. I, I start to minimize it. Minimization, I say, yeah, once or twice. It happened a couple times. Very, very rarely. Almost never. It's usually an accident. That's, how, that's the way it happens, but it's, it's very rare, and it's just uh, not even really intentional. And then rationalization. Well, yeah, sometimes I do, but it's because of my wife. It's because of my husband. It's because of my job. It's because of this stress. And, you know, you, know, you know, other people are doing it. It's not that big a deal, but I, I recognize, but you just understand, understand where I'm coming from, under where everybody else is. Why are we making such a big deal about this? Look at other people's sin. Some people eat too much. Some people drink too much. 
normalization, it becomes a normal part of your life. At night, it's where your head goes. It's where your mind goes. When you're alone, that's what you begin to think about. It's where it leads you. And then you know that you've been completely converted, so to speak. You've been completely stolen when you begin to celebrate. You begin to go, man, did you see that? You begin to tell someone else about it. You begin to brag to someone else. You begin to send photos to someone else. You are completely addicted, and now you're propagating the addiction. You're being used to send it out, and you're being used to kill, steal, and destroy. It's the stages of the addiction. What does the Bible say about our hearts anyway? What's the big deal about our hearts? Well, first of all, it's, it's how we come to salvation. We confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord according to Romans 10.10. 10. That's where salvation enters in, when we believe within our hearts. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.5 5, that when we're saved, that the Holy Spirit is poured in to our hearts. Mark 7, 1, 21 lets us know that this is where sin originates from. It's not that I'm just walking down the road and it just happens. It's, it comes from within my heart, from what I've been looking at, from what I've been talking about, from what I've been viewing. Ephesians 6 lets us know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities of darkness. In other words, there's a throne in your life, and Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to be on that throne, and he's going to be on When he's on that throne, he tells you, it's okay. It's not hurting anything. Don't worry about it. You're good. You, you ought to enjoy. Everybody else is. Don't listen to that. And then there's God's voice that's saying, I made you. I created you. I love you. I desire purity in your heart. I want to know you, and I want you to have an unhindered free and open relationship with me and with those whom you love. One without shame and bondage. Jeremiah 7, 19 lets us know that our hearts are deceived and they're woeful and they're wicked. Our heart, again, Proverbs chapter 4 tells us, is the wellspring of life. Above all else, we must guard our hearts So how do we do that? How do we guard our hearts? Practically, well, Alan shared some things with you. And uh, I had some stats, but I'm not going to go into them. I'm just going to give you one from the Barna Group. And actually, this is several places. One thing that I I just, as parents, I really want to encourage you. Uh, There's something called sexting. I'm sure you've heard of it. uh, And it's basically where uh, nude or partially nude pictures are sent from one child, one student, one teen to another. And uh, statistics now tell us, according to the Barnum Group, that one in four teenagers have participated in sexting. One out of every four. Okay? And uh, there's a 78% chance by the time a child is, is 17 that he will have been sent a sext. Okay? It's going to be sent. So uh, before your kids leave high school, the vast odds are they're going to receive one. You might say, well, I don't, see, I'm not going to let my kid get a phone. That's what you're thinking. Guess what? Not everybody else is like you. Most kids have a phone, okay? And they're teenagers. 
And guess what? Unless you have locked your kid in the room and you're not going to let them out, they're going to be around other teenagers. They're going to be around older people. They're going to be around other adults. They're going to be places, and they're going to see it on theirs. Heck, they're going to go to the library. They're going to, you know what I mean? You can't just say, I'm so going to close them off that they'll never have the opportunity. I, by the way, I don't encourage that, by the way, either. Here's the truth. If your children have social devices, social media devices, and they're on program, you need to know what they are. You need to look at them. They shouldn't have a password that you don't know. Now, I know that some of your teenagers are mad. I had some last hour I could tell that they were not happy. <laughs> Parent, that is your responsibility. Matter of fact, you ought to go on it. Matter of fact, you ought to friend up for Facebook, whatever your kid's on, Instagram, Snapchat, God forbid, Facebook, whatever it is. You ought, to, you ought to friend some of your Facebook, some of your kids, whoever your friends, your kids are spending the most time with, you ought to be Facebook friends with them too. And you can tell a lot about where they are by just looking at that. By the way, adults, you too. I so want to do a sermon on stupidity, but I would just say, <laughs> adults, if you're stupid on Facebook, I guarantee you your kids are going to be stupid too. And if you don't know if you're stupid... Why don't you bring it to me or someone else, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you if you're stupid or not. All right, you don't have to go with me. Just go to some logical, independent individual with a moral compass, and ask them to look at your Facebook page. That was free, so don't get all focused on your kids. But I, I do want you to focus on your children. Be aware. Be aware. Now, with that said, what are some things? that we can do. Obviously, Alan listed some. I want to encourage you to go get those resources. We've got this handoff. This is for everybody. I want to encourage everyone to take one. Um, The brochure, it's just essential that you set those structures up. That's so important. That's that's biblical. I just read to you from uh, Proverbs 4.23. That's just so important. But practically, spiritually, how, how do we do that spiritually? Well, there's something called the spiritual disciplines, and we teach them uh, in our semester classes, and, and most of you know them. One, are you reading God's Word and putting His thoughts in your mind and your heart, memorizing Scripture, the discipline of putting Scripture into your mind and your heart? Prayer, asking God for strength, for power. Confession, confessing your sin before God. Accountability to someone in your life that can be, you can be accountable to. Worship, as we worship, these are all spiritual disciplines that you want to incorporate in your life that help guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then repentance. <clears throat> if this is something you struggle with or struggle, repent. That doesn't just mean saying you're sorry and God, forgive me. Let me tell you what repentance is. First of all, it's confession. God, this is what I've done. This is what I'm doing, and I know it breaks your heart, and I know you love me, and you want what's best, but I am feeling powerless. God, I confess this before you, and I'm not going to rationalize. I'm not going to say, but Lord, other people do this, and they do that, and I've only done it a couple times, and and God, you know, it's because of my spouse or whatever. Quit rationalizing. Just say, God, I confessed, and Lord, I want to seek restitution with you. I, I want to be that son that comes back to the Father. And, Lord, I ask you to embrace me, to forgive me. And, Lord, I'm ready to have accountability that leads to change. I'm going to confess this to someone who has walked down this road and will walk with me and who's been down it before. 
And Lord, I'm willing to put in the stops. I'm going to get the filters. I'm going to begin to pray and I'm going to have community. I'm going to join a group. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to get with someone one-on-one. I'm going to be accountable. Accountable that leads to change. Accountability that leads to change. That's the gospel right there, guys. That we all recognize that we are sinners in, in that we've fallen short. We don't rationalize it. We just say, God, I am a sinner. And I recognize that you're pure and holy and that you've created me. And Lord, you want to forgive me. You want to give me that life. You're that father that wants to embrace me and to shower your grace upon me. As I recognize that you're a holy God and my objective is, God, to know you and to be accepted by you. So Lord, I confess, receive me and forgive me. And I want to be your child. Help me to overcome this power Lord, help me to place you back upon the, upon the throne of my life and be my God. I surrender to you the power of the gospel. Edwin Thomas was regarded as the greatest actor of the 19th century. He was a, an expert in Shakespeare and uh, Hamlet. He was regarded as probably the greatest actor of his time, and really many would still look back and say the greatest actor of the 19th century. Some would say uh, the greatest actor of American history. He had a brother named John, and John also would often perform with him in New York and all around the world. Matter of fact, Edwin Thomas, uh, his name was Edwin Thomas Booth, he was making $20,000 a year in the mid-1800s when the average income was $300 a year. So he was very successful. Everybody knew who he was. His picture was all over the place. And uh, Edward and his brother John would act for a while, but they soon began to have disagreements about life, about values, about philosophy, about politics. And soon our nation was in a war and uh, they were on different sides and Edwin would plead with his brother, but his brother had become so disillusioned that he wouldn't listen. And then one day his little brother, John, took a pistol and he went into Ford's Theater and he shot and killed Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. Edwin was so depressed, he was so discouraged that he left the stage for over a year. In shame and in horror, as he had to bear the image of being John Wilkes Booth, brother Edwin Thomas Booth. His fame had not been able to shield him from the shame that he felt. In deep depression, he would go throughout his days wondering how could this have happened? Why could he not get through to his brother Then one day in New Jersey, he was about to get on a train, and the crowd was beginning to press forward. And he noticed a nice-looking young man who was before him, and uh, it kind of reminded him of his little brother. And as he was watching him, the train pulled up, and as people began to press, the young man lost his step, and he fell down where the train was coming off the platform into that small area, and he had fallen down uh, face first, and it looked that there would be no time that the train would surely kill him. And Edwin jumped down, and he yanked 
the young man up and pull him off to safety just in the nick of time, saving his life. The young man, when he looked up, he recognized Edwin Booth because he was so famous. And he said, thank you so much, Mr. Booth. You, you saved my life. Edwin made sure he was okay and then walked off and left and didn't think about it again. Until weeks later, he was informed that the young man that he had saved was actually a young man named William Todd, Robert Todd Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son. You see, one man had stolen and killed and murdered a life. The other chose to give life. Today, there are two entities vying for your heart. One that wants to steal and murder and destroy. Wants you to minimize. Wants you to normalize. Wants you to deny that there's any consequence of sin. And another who wants you to have life. Another who sees the akarit. The full picture. Who knows the final outcome. And has given us his word so that we might know life and know it eternally. Which will you choose this morning? Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. And God, I know there are many that are in bondage here today. And Lord, I know they've heard the lie, they've lived the lie. Lord, that shame has so conditioned them to the point that in order to deal with that, it just doesn't matter anymore. Lord, today I pray that you would awaken their hearts, you would awaken their souls, and that you would draw them by the power of your Spirit. Lord, if there are those who don't know you as Savior, and this doesn't even make sense, God, I pray that your grace would so manifest itself that they would see the greatness of our God and King who wants us to have life and freedom and joy and purpose not to just exist, not to just uh, to simply try to fulfill our desires, but to know life and purpose, to make an impact for your glory, which is the purpose for which we were created. Lord, I pray for those who are in bondage that today would be the day that they come to the Father who has his arms of grace and mercy wide open and says, I want to love you. I want to help you. I want to walk with you. I don't want you to be surrounded by the swine. I want you to be surrounded by my grace and by all that I have for you. Yes, it is a difficult road. Yes, it is hard. But it starts with confessing that you are God and that I'm a sinner and I need you, Lord. I commit myself to you, Jesus. Heal me. I ask these things. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.